But I, I launched the Power Inquiry, in, uh, which reported in 2006. Um, and it was the, the report itself was the product of a year and a half's work um, based around a commission. But we called it an inquiry for a very specific reason, which was we didn't want to create uh, a project where, you know, 10 people, great and the good, sat in a room, read lots of books, asked ICM to do some polling, and then came back and told the whole country what they thought they should do. We wanted it to actually, um, you know, sort of be a bit of action research as well, to sort of use some of the techniques we were discovering from around the world to draw out of people what they felt was wrong and then to come out with solutions. So we started in the first instance with who our commissioners were. And I, you know, so I sometimes go around saying, and we had this really diverse group of commissioners. And then you think, well, they were, but they weren't that diverse. But they were more interesting. They were from different worlds. So we had the head of the WI. Um, the whole process made me a total convert to the WI, I have to say. Um, we had a Radio 1 DJ. We ran a competition with uh, Breakfast News and The Mirror to try and find a young commissioner um, to try and say that we believe, I believe, that you know, getting different sets of people around a table, um, getting them to listen to the evidence or looking at research, you know, sometimes puts a different perspective on what you hear. And it really struck me in our very first commission meeting where um, Emma B, who um, used to run radio, was running a show on Radio 1 at the time, put her hand up and she said, I'm really sorry, but I don't know what a whip is and you keep talking about it. And you suddenly thought, actually, why should she know what a whip is? You know, in fact, you know, good honour that she didn't know. So we, so we created this commission that went around the country and the, the project was launched partly because in recent past elections, turnout had been plummeting. And there was this big concern in Westminster that, um, uh, you know, in, in the media, that uh, why was this? Why were people not turning out to vote? And the commentators started with their own theories that this was because we were all apathetic. Um, and that, or that we were too content, that life was pretty good, we all had jobs, we all had, um, you know, actually the weather was getting warmer, so we were all much happier. Um, you know, they sort of, they, the spin was amazing, and then particularly the spin from the politicians themselves, which I found the most interesting. In fact, one of the most depressing sessions we had was with a politician who was supposed to be one of the more reform-minded politicians, who's no longer with us, Robin Cook. And, he, and actually, he almost said, and I wish I could get the transcripts of that, of that session, where he said, basically, the problem is with the people. You know, the reason why people aren't voting, well, it's their fault. We're doing everything right. Even though he knew the system wasn't actually um, quite right. Actually, what we found wasn't that. wasn't that people were content or, and definitely not that they were apathetic. I think we found people that were very interested in issues, and that won't be a surprise to you guys. Um, they were very interested in things that concern them, their family, their community, um, the things that they cared about. Um, but they didn't believe, and they articulated this time and time again, they didn't believe that the political process, the political system, could actually deal with those issues effectively. They didn't believe that issues around equality or health or housing, sustainability, creating better local spaces, creating better schools, um, could be dealt with effectively by the politics that was on offer to them. And they weren't actually sure that the political process actually made a difference. But even more so, they were not convinced that their participation in the political process would make a difference. And we had, you know, reams of research. And I, th I suppose, in a way, if I had to sum it up, we found three things that people were telling us time and time again, which was they, ha they had no voice, the sense that they felt powerless in that way, that the political system offered them little choice, you know, they felt it was the same old, the same old politics done in the same old way, the same parties feeling the same, almost saying the same thing, and that they certainly felt they had no influence. 
And that issue of influence, I think, was really interesting because even those people who were members of political parties, that, that unique, dying, very small, increasingly smaller breed of people who were, who were members of parties, felt that they had no influence. To the extent at which uh, one set of them said to us that, um, you know, they were, they were all members of different parties, but they all felt the same, that if they wanted to influence their own party's policy on an issue, they would be better off being a member of Greenpeace or Amnesty or one of the campaign groups. That actually, they felt there was little purpose in them being members of a political party. And you can understand why that is now. Because our parties campaign and work in a very different way to the way they did 20 or 30 years ago. And some of you may say, well, of course they would, because, you know, media and everything is all so different. But actually what it means is that you join a party, but other than paying your subs, what do you get back? You don't get any chance to discuss issues. You meet, you meet occasionally in drafty pubs to, uh, to talk about, um, well, I don't know, who's going to deliver the next leaflet, but there's not many of those either. And that, that sense of how the parties treat their own people sets a, a culture within the parties which they take to Westminster and they continue to operate in that way. And, I mean, I, in a way, I might come back to that because I think the way the parties have changed their whole method of campaigning has, a, has had a great effect on people's connection or sense of connection with the political process. We found, I suppose, the overarching sort of um, theme was that people wanted their voices heard and they wanted their voices heard more of the time and they wanted their voices heard in a meaningful way. I and mean, remember, this was the, um, the height of consultation, you know, and consultation, we gathered some amazing consultations. One from one local council that said, um, the local council will have to put up your council tax. We, we want to take your views on this. So, you know, here's a, here's a ballot paper or, you know, a, a form. And it had, in a sort of quite sort of, you know, 14 point, you know, I would like the council tax to remain the same, little box, tick here. Big letters, I would like the council tax to go up a little bit, little box, and then in the small letters again, I would, I'm prepared to pay another 10% on my council tax. I mean, this is called, this is called not consultation, is it? It's called waste of paper. Um, or the classic, which I thought was great, um, was Ken Livingstone, who consulted the people of London on whether they wanted bendy buses. The bendy buses were already on order. You know, so, you know, we were being treated like, like fools, really. The report also looked quite a lot at um, why they felt this change had happened. And I just want to pause on that for a minute because I think understanding the causes always helps you to work out what the route out of it might be. Because you, you can't, you know, it was, it's, it's not an accident that we're in this situation. And I suppose our, our view on this was, went something like this. Our we live, all of us now, in, a, in a, um, a world that's very different to the world of 50 years ago. It sort of goes without saying, doesn't it? But actually, when you look at it, I mean, amazingly different. Even, even from when I was a student, the idea that we would all have laptops and be tweeting in the middle of meetings, and, you know, it's, it, it's totally different. But not only is that sort of the communication and the mass communication, we've heard it all before, different. But actually, the way we live is different. We're more educated. We're even though the difference between rich and poor is getting wider, we're actually more affluent. We actually do have um, more, a higher standard of living. That sense of deference towards your betters is not as strong as it was. And our political parties, the political system was created in modern times to reflect a world that doesn't exist, a, a sort of you know, industrial era where you know, it was very clear that the one party represented the boss classes and one party represented the working man. 
and that people worked largely in a number of small industries. Um, and, you know, if your father was a miner, you're likely to be a miner and your children were likely to be miners. And that sense that actually you looked towards, you know, if you were a miner of the Labour Party, and you expected them to represent your views, and you, you gave them the, the authority to do that, and it was all fine. Well, we, nobody lives like that anymore. People are more mobile across sectors and countries. I mean, the industrial past doesn't exist, but our political system still pretends it does. And because things like the voting system remain as they are, it encourages it even further. Which is why when people said to us, the political parties are all the same, and all the parties went mad and said, no, we're not. You know, how possibly, oh, our, our policy on this is far different to their policy. But they are the same, because what our political system allows them to do is to say, okay, I'm going to focus. I mean, on the motorway up here, I heard that apparently the, the people that they're going for this time in this election is motorway man. Last time it was Worcester Woman in 97, whether you remember. Because what the system says is, it says, these seats are safe seats for you, for you, and these seats are safe seats for you, and therefore we're, all of our focus, all of the party's focus during a campaign is, is around the 100,000 people that actually affect the, um, the election. They're the ones where seats change hands, and therefore the government changes hands. So is it any wonder that, that the policies become more and more and more familiar? Is it any wonder that nobody wants to take risks, and the idea that you've got to be absolutely on message absolutely all of the time starts to emerge? And therefore, isn't it any wonder that, every, that most of us say, excuse me, <laughs> I'm here as well, and I've got something to say. So the sort of sense that it, we're sort of captured by our past, but the political process itself isn't able to renew itself from the inside. So the report suggested 30 different things, you know, um, on one possible ways of reform, and it was very well received, and we were very pleased. Our funders were very pleased, thankfully. Um, and, you know, we got four front pages, and it was all great. And we were great, hoo-la-la. And then nothing happened. I mean, literally, nothing happened. Um, Gordon Brown was trying to become prime minister, and so a little thing did happen, which was within days of him becoming prime minister, he uh, announced the Green Paper on the governance of Britain and had taken quite a lot of our report. We'd been working quite hard on him. And so there was a sort of sense that even though, um, you know, we were worried, there was a sense that a prime minister... Uh, he made one of the most amazing speeches on democratic reform I'd heard from a, um, a, not a prime minister. But then, of course, nothing happened, and nothing happened. And, it, and it's become quite a joke with um, Gordon Brown, I think, with me, between us, our joke, <laughs> no, my joke, which is every time he's in a crisis, he reaches for dem democratic reform. He came in as prime minister. Now, I've said this to him, so I feel I'm not sort of, you know, being rude. Um, he, came, he became prime minister, and he needed to show that he was different from Tony Blair. So he reached for the mantle of democratic constitutional reform, fixing politics. Um, when uh, the expenses scandal uh, struck, he reached again for democratic reform. He was going to fix politics. And now, as he's about to face another national ballot, he reaches for it yet again. It's a sort of plaything. David Cameron's guilty as well, and I'll go on to, to tell you what I think of him later. Um, and I think this past year has been one of the most shameful occurrences historically for British democracy. I think the expenses scandal wasn't just about money, because it, I, for me, it shone a light into the very darker corners of the political process, and it exposed, I think, to a much, much wider audience than any of us have been able to do, a system which says, you know, we're, we're resting on the laurels of the past, that informality, um, and actually, it's a them and us culture, and we know better. It's that sort of arrogance. And for me, it was an arrogance that allowed the, that expenses process to carry on the way, the way it had. 
but every dark cloud has a silver lining. <laughs> and the silver lining was that the people that funded power came back to us and said, uh, maybe there's an opportunity here. And I had sort of been, you know, I thought it would all disappear, actually. I thought the expenses scandal would, would you know, rise up, disappear. But we didn't actually know how, how absolutely appalling it had been at the time. And they asked if I would run a uh, campaign in the general election to try and make the issue of democratic reform one of the issues uh, in the campaign. And trying to get an issue to, you know, in the campaign, I know I'm running out of time, so I'm going to be very, very quick now, um, is, is incredibly hard if any of you have ever tried it, because there's so much noise and you're competing with all these other things and, and you are competing with dogs, you know, and things like that. It's very, very scary. But the thing that convinced me was to do it was that I was in the back of a taxi going home one night and... Um, do, do, are you only from, do you know LBC, the radio station? It's a London local radio station. Um, LBC was on, and it's uh, not something I listen to very often. And there's a, there's a DJ called James Whale. He's sort of, you know, I could a shock jock type man. Um, and he had a phone in. And so people ringing in, and you know, you heard the usual, you know, moat. I didn't know what a moat was, you know, what you do with the duck house, all this sort of going on. And then the conversation, as the journey went on, started to talk about electoral reform and system changes and how is it that, you know, why is it they, they can behave like this? And, the, and, and I, was, I, was, I was literally shocked. And I, I wish I could get a, a tape of that um, phone in because it was actually astonishing. Within the sort of 30 minutes I was in that taxi, it had gone from the usual, you know, hang them all, flog them all, you know, who do they think they are, to uh, sort of electoral reform and would, would that help? And it sort of, met, sort of came to me that, you know, if we were going to do this campaign in the election to try and make it, we A, needed to turn that anger that people felt into something positive, um, and B, we needed to make those connections again and again between the system and, and the expenses scandal. The result of all that is this campaign, Power 2010, which actually, if I was a good campaigner, I would have started with and talked to you ad nauseum about all the way through this, but I sort of felt I needed to put it in context. It's a very simple campaign, really. Um, Rather than saying we have got the answers to the system, um, we opened up to ideas for what, what people thought, what you all thought should change uh, in our democracy. And we had something like 4,500 submissions in, in the eight weeks that we were open for ideas. They were then put, given to an academic and sort of sorted out. And then we asked James Fishkin, who's a deliberative pollster from Stanford University, to help us organise a deliberative event at which we had... Well, it should have been 200 people, but it was the weekend of the snow. But we ended up with a microcosm, of, apparently a scientific microcosm of, of the UK. And these poor people were, you know, from all walks of life. I mean, if you look on our website, there's a little video, and there are people that literally say, and we haven't set it up, I, I'm a taxi driver, and I've never thought about this before. And they sat, and they, they had, you know, sort of fair, balanced paperwork, and they had experts on hand, and they discussed, and they did all the ideas that had been put forward. And then they ranked them or they marked them each, um, not against each other, but how strongly they felt about each of the reforms. And we took the top 50, and that's now being put to a public vote, and the top five will form our sort of pledge, and, and it's something that we'll take to candidates. Actually, you will take to candidates, and I'll talk about that in a minute, during the campaign. And it's trying to say, this is an agenda for change which has been created by the people, and we want you as our candidate, someone who wants to represent us, to uh, sign up for this, and when you, if you get into Parliament, um, to do what you can to to bring it about. And the thing that came out of that forum for me were three things. What people wanted, very simple. They didn't want revolution and they didn't want, you know, uh, um, uh, all the MPs to be, to be hung. 
but they wanted Parliament to work better. They actually believed in the institution, they wanted it to be strengthened. So ideas around strengthening Parliament came up very high. They wanted more of a voice, so ideas about how they could have a, more, a deeper sense of democracy came out very highly, and they wanted their rights protected better. So things around um, their relationship with the state and how they, you know, things like Bill of Rights, things like no ID cards, things like the database state being uh, controlled in some way were all issues that came up very highly. Now, um, the essence of the next few weeks for us, once the vote closes next week, is to um, set up teams of volunteers all around the country, which we've begun to do. And, you know, I keep saying to people, the way this, this campaign will succeed is to use that one moment during an electoral process where, where your candidates, where your would-be politicians, really do have to listen to the people. And that's during this election campaign. And if we can make, if we can make people, because the ask of the candidates comes from local people, um, it's their voters that have to go to them and say, you know, if you, want me, if you want my vote, tell me what you think of this. So I think that could be the thing that could, in some constituencies, I hope, sway the election in some way, or at least take the issue of democratic reform to the next parliament. Um, I hope you'll all A, vote. Go online, power2010.org.uk. Um, I hope you'll all sign the pledge when it comes out, because the idea is that we all sign up to it and then we take it to our politicians. Um, and I wish you all well on, on your campaigns in, for the next few days. I've, I'll take questions. I oh, know I haven't got very long, and I kept talking. I'm really sorry. Thank you.